Please take your Bibles and join me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 1009. The title of our sermon is Acceptable Worship. Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That, of course, is our mission statement, our articulation of what we are doing as a local church. To fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of Jesus, of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them all that Jesus commanded. Last week, we began an eight-week series where we are seeking to answer the question, what kind of people do we need to be in order to do this work? Or what are the kinds of values that we need to Um, embrace in order to do this kind of work. I introduced the series last week by describing this strange new world in which we live where parents murder or mutilate their own children amidst raucous applause from pastors, teachers, coaches, friends, and millions of strangers on the internet. A strange new world where men and women are viewed as completely interchangeable entities where witchcraft and occult practices are gaining increasing popularity with young people, especially through things like social media. A world where we're all drowning in a list of to-dos that our wonderful technological advancements have led us to believe are all possible to get done in a day. It's all leaving us feeling busier and lonelier than ever. And all of this is happening under the watchful and approving eye of a government that reinforces its demand of our worship on a daily basis through nearly every single major institution in our country to include news media, social media, Hollywood, and most institutions of higher, higher academic learning. So today, we want to take up the first of seven values that I laid out the end of the sermon last week that we believe must characterize Redeemer Baptist Church. And this first value is acceptable worship. Worship of the one true and living God. So let me read our verses here in Hebrews 12. Give a brief outline and then we'll get to work. Starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're going to take up our text this morning in just two parts. First, I want to consider um, the first uh, several verses, verses 18 through 24, considering both their context and the, this contrast that the author makes between the Old and the New Covenants, and then in verses 25 through 29, we will ask the question, how shall we respond? So we see a contrast between the two covenants and their worship. Firstly, and then secondly, we, we see how shall we respond. First then, Hebrews, its context, and these two covenants. The, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians living just prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., calling them to constancy and perseverance in the faith, calling them to maintain their profession of the gospel amid heavy persecutions that were being hurled against them by the Judaical Christian or the Judaical church state of the day. The message of the epistle, therefore, is to treasure up the superiority of the new covenant in comparison with the old. With the coming of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant, the old has been rendered obsolete and was being brought to a complete and final end. The final death blow to come when Rome sacked Jerusalem and leveled the temple in 70 AD, which to this day has not been rebuilt. This is the point, essentially, in different ways over and over again the author makes. And in our passage, verses 18-29, through 29, he reaches the rhetorical climax of the epistle exhorting his readers not to miss out through unbelief on the highest expression of God's grace in the sacrifice of Christ and the new covenant worship to which they are called. So in order to understand this call to action in verse 28, offering to God acceptable worship, we need to understand the way in which he contrasts the worship at Sinai, the experience at Sinai, with the worship at Zion. Now this Sinai experience that he describes in these opening verses here, uh, he does so through the lens of two passages primarily. Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and Exodus 19 and 20. Verse 18 of our passage is taken directly from Deuteronomy 4.11 where Moses says to Israel, 
and you came and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. John Owen summarizes the picture well. He writes, Nothing can be conceived of greater dread and terror than such a mixture of fire and darkness and tempest, which left nothing of light unto the fire but its dread and terror. For by reason of this blackness and darkness, the people had no useful light by the fire. Our author then drawing from the Exodus account now, Exodus 20, 18 and 19, he adds in verse 19 of Hebrews 12 that there was the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Now I want you to imagine the scene with me here for a moment. Imagine that you are one of these Israelites rescued out of Egypt, out of Egyptian slavery. Think of it. God, whom you have just witnessed, drown the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea after He decimated their deities through a series of devastating plagues that involved uh, hail uh, hail from heaven and and blood-filled rivers. This God has called you to this mountain. The mountain looms large over your head. The top of it burns with fire further up than you can see. And the light from the fire, rather than illuminating the whole scene and giving you the clear picture of what's going on and giving you light by which you can really make out what's happening, all the fire does, all the light does, is underscore how dark, how terrible, troubling, and foreboding the entire scene is. You are standing before this fire hurricane on this mountain, and from out of it, you hear trumpet blasts like thunder, and a dreadful voice calls forth from you a devastating degree of holiness to which you will never in your own right live up to. We see those summarized in the ten words offered there at Sinai. If you're there in this moment, are you feeling a bit intimidated and unprepared for what this God is calling you to do? I I imagine we all would be. I I hope we all would be. We'd be in good company. Our author goes on in verse 20, he quotes Exodus 19, 12, and 13. And he, he shows by doing so just how unbearable the weight and glory and demands of this old covenant were. Summarizing the quotation, touch the mountain and you die, man or beast. It's a physical mountain and entity. You could run up and touch it, but it was impermissible. You can, but you may not Touch it. And then he adds a line about Moses. Even Moses confesses that he trembled with fear. Now, this quotation of Moses is interesting, difficult even, because Moses himself doesn't tell us this. Neither in Exodus nor Deuteronomy does Moses say this. The author seems to infer it from Exodus 19, 19. Which says, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Seems to be inferring the content of what Moses spoke there. Now we can't be certain of that. It's very possible also that he's simply drawing from a few different places 
in the account in Exodus. But at some level, we have to, we have to approach this verse, verse 21, remembering the Holy Spirit's superintendence, trusting the veracity of these words. Because overall, the point is clear. The entire Sinai experience was a tremendous and unbearable sight for everyone involved. And it called forth fear above just about anything else. Well, this dreadful experience at Sinai is is then contrasted in verses 22 through 24. Contrasted with the era of the new covenant. Consider it with me. What does he say in these verses? First, he says, new covenant worshipers have come to a very different mountain. That is, Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See a text like Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. So the expectant hope, this song of expectant hope for God's people, we see has been brought to fruition in the New Covenant. We see also in these verses that New Covenant worshipers have come to God, who is the judge of all, to angels, who though they are in no need of redemption themselves, they are nevertheless co-worshippers with us. And we have come to God's elect, enrolled in heaven, And we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This phrase, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, seems surely to describe God's elect as a whole, but perhaps with the emphasis being those still on earth. We are on earth, yet enrolled in heaven. And the phrase, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, describing the saints already in heaven, separated from their bodies awaiting the resurrection of the dead. And of course, new covenant worshipers have come to the God-man Himself. Jesus Christ, whose blood, His shed blood, inaugurated this superior covenant. Speaking a, a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this is interesting because He seemingly inserts, introduces Abel here out of nowhere. In verse 24. This is almost surely a reference back to chapter 11 and verse 4. It says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel, though he is dead, still speaks. He demonstrates what living faith looks like offering acceptable, God, uh, offering acceptable worship to God on God's terms. Abel is the first man in Scripture said to offer a sacrifice to God. Now, I don't think it's to say that the author here has no thought at all of his death. You know, Cain's, uh, Abel's brother, Cain, killed him. There seems to be a double force to this reference to his blood. Not only thinking of his death and his blood which cried out to God from the ground, but to his faith and sacrifice before that which 
still speaks today. The author comments positively on it in chapter 11, so he highlights here the superiority of Christ to Abel. Abel is an example of one who speaks to us through his right observation of worship. So the author is contrasting Abel's sacrifice with that of Cain's, uh, sorry, Abel's with that of Christ. Abel, his sacrifice was better than Cain's. Jesus is better than Abel's. Because though he, like Abel, died, unlike Abel, his death secured the glories of the new covenant. Now, however you categorize each of these very specific phrases in these set of verses, I want to maybe sum it all up for you here. They're all piled up together, not necessarily in any particular logical order, just piled up to say in the new covenant, new covenant life centering around the corporate worship in which we engage each week, we are not merely associating with the members here in this room. It is not just us here in this room that you can see with your eyes. It is not just the rest of the church on earth as saints around the world gather together today. When we come together for worship, we are not just gathering with each other. We are not just gathering with the church militant, but also the church triumphant. As saints whose race is one, they finish their race, they yet still gather for worship. And yet that isn't all There's a quote I found this week. I couldn't find who said it, but I like the quote, so here it is. We also gather with the whole family of God, from the archangel nearest the throne to the least in the kingdom. Though requiring not, as we do, the personal application of the blood of sprinkling, they, the angels, love to assemble as spectators of the great commemorative rite and make it the theme of devoutest uh, contemplation. For we read from Ephesians 3, Unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places is made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. When they search for the richest displays of the divine character, where is it, we are told, they direct their gaze? With what do they task their immortal energies? With folded wings, they bend over Gethsemane and Calvary and exclaim, The whole earth is full of His glory. So, we have not come to a physical mountain amid darkness, gloom, and dread, unbearable prohibitions, and a warning that if we touch it, we shall die. We have come to a spiritual mountain, to the very people of God, and we all, saints triumphant and saints militant, gather with innumerable angels in festal gathering as citizens of the supernatural city of God, to worship God who speaks through Jesus Christ, the guarantor of a better covenant. Right now, this very moment, if we had eyes to see, what glory might we recognize and capture looking around this room? 
what celestial beings have stooped to look and to witness this gathering of God's people. So that's the contrast. How do we respond to that? Consider with me verses 25 through 29. The preacher exhorts his readers. He says, do not refuse him who is speaking. He reminds his readers that those who did not um, escape when they refused Moses, he merely warned from earth. He says, like them, so too shall it be for anyone who rejects the one, Jesus, the greater Moses, who now warns from heaven. Again, he contrasts the covenants. The worship of the new covenant better than the old. The stakes for rejecting the new covenant are more severe than for those who rejected the old. And he quotes Haggai 2.6 here to make the point. He says, The earth trembled when God came and spoke upon Mount Sinai. But now there is another shaking to be done. This time it will not be of the earth only, but also the heavens. And he explains this in the next two verses. He says that this is a reference to the removal of the physical creation in order that what cannot be shaken would stand firm. The point in this is that through faith, God's people participate in the new order that has been inaugurated by the exalted Christ, and so they survive the eschatological shaking of which he speaks. So he says, don't refuse him who speaks, and so be removed in the end with the physical creation. Instead, he says, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and offer Acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This last bit here in verse 29 is, though not, he doesn't uh, tell us that he is, he's quoting Deuteronomy 4 again, verse 24. That's, in that section, Moses has just moved from his description of the darkness, the gloom, the storm that was at Sinai. The voice of the Lord, all in verses 11 and 12 of Deuteronomy 4. He moves, he's moved on from the giving of the ten words and the people's keeping of the covenant as the condition for remaining in the land that they were to enter. Verses 13 and 14 of Deuteronomy 4. And then in verses 15 through 22, he gives a deeper look at the logic of the second commandment in particular. And to sum up those verses, he says this, Do not make for yourself a carved image, because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is why we are called to offer to God acceptable worship. Because our God is a consuming fire. Our confession 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. A helpful article at Ligonier called The Regular Principle of Worship, Derek Thomas describes acceptable worship as reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, singing the Bible, the Psalms as well as 
Scripture songs that reflect the development of redemptive history in the birth and life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Praying the Bible. The Father's house is a house of prayer. And seeing the Bible in the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So when we gather for worship on Sunday, we are, as we've said, coming together into the heavenly court alongside innumerable angels in festal gathering to worship the one true living God who is a consuming fire to worship Him as He has prescribed. So we do not want to come before Him according to our own wisdom, but to come with reverence and all receiving instruction from him regarding how we are to worship. This is why our liturgy every week is essentially the same thing. While much time and effort and, and prayer and thought go into forming this liturgy every week, the, the fundamentals of it don't change because God has told us what pleases him in worship. So that's why we read God's Word, we sing God's Word, we pray God's Word, and we preach God's Word. And every week we get to see God's Word and taste it in the Lord's Supper. And as He adds to our numbers, we get to see His Word as well in baptism. So think with me for a few moments here some applications of all of this. This call to acceptable worship. The first is this. Are you listening to Him who speaks to you today? Are you listening? Have you indeed received this unshakable kingdom? Or are you still living in the old one? Right, all throughout this book in Hebrews, the author says something to the effect of, he's quoting the Psalms, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So are you listening? Have you, have you heard Jesus speaking to you through his word this morning? Don't go your own way. Don't be your own God. Set down your own rules. Follow your own path. In that way lies madness and destruction. In that way, God is only judge. Sinner or saint, God is your judge. But as sinner only, God is only judge. In that way, there is only fear to be had. But for those who are listening, who have listened, are we committed to offering acceptable worship to God? This means a couple things for us. Obviously, it means that we have to gather. We have to commit to being here together each Sunday for for worship. Each Sunday morning and, dare we say, Sunday evening. We gather each Sunday evening, the second Sunday of the month. Are you committed to that? Are you committed to being here? Of course, you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm here this morning, right? 
But are we committed, really? Of course, there are extenuating circumstances. You'll be sick sometimes. You'll have no choice but to be out of town for work, perhaps. You know, you may have a job that is good and necessary work of mercy and necessity. And if society is going to stay afloat at all, you will periodically or even regularly have to work on Sunday, of course. You may be on vacation and you need to worship with another, another congregation while you're out of town. But these things should, for the majority of us, not mark our regular weekly or probably even monthly experience. Now perhaps there's nothing that you can do about your situation. Your heart is in the right place and you're living faithfully before God in, in good fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which... I would consider that certainly to apply to most of us here this morning. But maybe you're here this morning, but you just really haven't made such a commitment. So if you find yourself regularly absent from the Lord's Day worship, morning or evening, would you commit afresh to being with God's people gathering here each Lord's Day? But that being said, being here physically is only half the battle. Most of us are here physically week after week after week. Being here physically is only half the battle. Earlier we addressed what you could call our method of worship. right? Our worship is dictated by God's Word. So only what He commands may we do. But here I want to address for a moment our manner of worship. He describes it. To worship God with reverence. And awe. Consider Isaiah 29 13. This people draws near to me with their mouths and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So we're not just talking about dragging our bodies in the door, plopping down in a seat, going through the motions all the while our hearts are fixated elsewhere. We have entered the heavenly assembly. After all, and we ought to worship God, body and soul, with energy and purpose. Now, again, there are extenuating circumstances. Most of you have like 12 or 15 kids, and so I get it. But let's ask ourselves a very potentially troubling question. Let's not, let's, let's acknowledge the extenuating circumstances, but let's not make excuses. Let's ask ourselves this. Are you actively preparing for worship each week? Maybe you are typically here, but are you going to bed super late on Saturday? Sleeping in late on Sunday morning, scrambling and fighting just to get here five or ten minutes late each each week. Forget Sunday school altogether. And are you rushing out the door after church just to fill your afternoon with your, your favorite sports ball team whether it's on TV or the one your kids play for, or filling your afternoon with more work and errands and whatever else that you think you need to do to get ready for the week. If that describes anyone here, allow me to commend to you the words of Isaiah 58, 13. 
He says, call the Sabbath the delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob. Now, we are not talking here about mere physical inactivity. It's often a a misconception about the Lord's Day. While some of us need to be challenged to do less on Sundays, others may need to be reminded that while it's true that the Lord's Day may often include the holy afternoon nap, a lack of consciousness is not the key indicator of a well-spent Sunday. And later in the series, we'll talk a little bit more, perhaps, about what that might look like. But for now, I want to just challenge everyone in this room, including myself, whatever your Sundays look like from beginning to end, even starting Saturday night, let us commit together to use the Lord's Day, the whole day, to prioritize the worship of God, physical and mental rest, as well as acts of mercy, necessity, and hospitality. So those are some thoughts about corporate worship, but I have two more things fairly briefly before we're done here. Family worship. We don't just commit in acceptable worship to be here on the Lord's Day to worship God together with reverence and awe in our hearts. But we also commit to worship God in a similar fashion, every moment of our lives. Now we're going to talk about family worship more later on as well, but I do want to mention it here briefly with a question. Does reading Scripture, singing Scripture, praying Scripture, and discussing Scripture fill your home during the week? That may be very strict Uh, times, regulated times, the same time every day. It may be slightly more ad hoc here and there, but still regular. Are those things happening? If not, be warned, the family that spends no time doing these things during the week shall hardly be ready to do them with the great assembly on the Lord's Day. Personal worship then. In addition to the corporate worship and family worship, we are individuals living before God. And you could say it this way, you cannot give what you do not have. The husband and father who does not read, sing, pray, and meditate on Scripture each day will be ill-equipped to do those things with his family in any meaningful and consistent way throughout the week. And of course, he'll be ill-equipped to lead them in worship. Again, on the Lord's Day. The mother who neglects these things cannot teach her children or other women the truths of God. The single person cannot effectively engage in mutual discipleship if he or she is disengaged from the Lord throughout the week, never cracking open the Bible in between Sundays. I'm not saying we have to spend two hours every single day praying and meditating. 
Perhaps it's only five minutes here or ten minutes there. It may be in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, or it may be a combination of all three. At times, it may simply be reading a chapter or a paragraph or a verse and then saying a quick prayer, God help me with this. It's okay to say, this is all I can do for now. But I do have in a plan to find more and more time and more and more ways to get God's Word into my life and into my heart so that I might know it better, that I might apply it better, that I might grow in holiness so that I might know Christ better and experience sweeter communion with Him and His people. We need to see the importance of getting God's Word into our hearts and engaging with Him through secret prayer. Because all of these arenas of worship, they minister to and develop the others. Corporate worship on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now, it's the opening act of the week. And it is meant to provide families and individuals with spiritual resources for worshiping God rightly in every aspect of your lives the rest of the week. And in turn, all week long, as you worship God personally and as a family, you are preparing for, practicing for, what you're going to do at the start of next week. So then, all is said and done. The ills of our day, and any day, can rightly be traced to self-worship. We all want to be our own gods. But God calls us to something better, something higher, something sweeter. This first value, then, to offer to God acceptable worship aims to combat that temptation to deify ourselves. So in this series, as we launch into it today, this first value, we are committing up front, before we say anything else, we are committing up front to reject the allurement of self-worship. We are rejecting the worship of anything but the one true and living God. In doing so, we are committing to offer acceptable worship to God with the people of God according to both the manner and in uh, according to the method and the manner which he has prescribed in his word.